Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Tell people what you're excited about. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by Jesse Shakarian. Jesse is a developer turned UX designer at DIA Design Guild in Los Angeles, California. She's a UX industry writer and public speaker on usability, design, and chess. Her work has been featured in Prototyper and UX Collective. She also writes for chess publications like Chess Tech News and Chessable. Jessie has built the bridge to the chess industry where she is a consultant and working on making chess engines more usable. She's currently writing a book about what chess can teach us about building digital spaces. Jessie shares her journey from writer and coder to training to become a med tech assistant to a UX designer. Through her interests in information architecture and how that led her to better understand chess and Jesse's skills, experience, and interests converged as she explores chess and is working to make digital chess engines more usable and accessible. We dig into how working on chess and chess engines and how chess in general can help us better understand exformation, information architecture, usability, and accessibility. Jesse was so kind to bear with me as I nerded out on what we can learn when we start to explore other systems and how we can, that can help us better understand our own current system. We also explore the importance of understanding, or at least appreciating context, when it comes to design. Jesse's experience from chess shows us the importance of reflexive learning and how we might improve our craft. It was an honor and absolute pleasure having Jesse join me on the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. Jesse, welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me. Um, so a little bit about me. I am a UX designer at the Design Guild, uh, and I am a chess enthusiast. And um, I really enjoy looking at immersive digital spaces. That's great. And uh, I know the, a few of these topics I really want to dig into. Uh, so a few few interests that are outlined there. Maybe we'll just start with UX, kind of through the UX and IA community. That's how we. Uh, got to know each other. Where where did your interest in uh, UX or you know kind of information architecture specifically uh, emerge from? Uh, so I actually started as a developer, and um, when I was freelancing, I uh, so in, in my twenties I, I wrote a lot, and I was a freelance writer. So I kind of tacked on like what I guess we would call content strategy, but I didn't know that that's what it was called. Uh, so I started doing that. And I added it to my my developer, like, you know, not like the natural upsell of, of freelance work. And um, when I started doing that, I started building products from end to end, right? So um, 
I realized that I really loved everything that happened at the beginning. And once I learned that it was called content strategy and that there was something called information architecture, I was like, oh, these are the physical parts that I love, that I love more than coding at that point. And so I was just like, what? There's a whole world of like, like, you know, website librarian aspects, and you can just kind of, you know, nerd out over like how things are placed and labeled and categorized. Like, it made me so happy. <laughs> so when I found the like IA community through uh, like Dia's apprenticeship program, which is why I got my start, um, I was just like, oh, I found my people. Yay. <laughs> Yeah, I know for me personally, uh, the the IA community feels really special to me. The the number of uh, smart, supportive people that that I've encountered through the IA community, and so just you know, kind of echoing what you said. It's like when you you find you find these people. It's in some ways, it's like where have you been all my life? Yeah, exactly. But then also, I'm I'm just I'm I'm so glad that we made this this connection now. Uh, Yeah. You and you had mentioned taxonomy, uh, so plain I'm plain loose with labels and words. But uh, from a taxonomy perspective, too, isn't it? It's just really interesting. I think the human condition, kind of like you were saying when you found out, like this is a discipline or a content strategy, and it's like all of these what felt like, and and this is just from my perspective, certain things that feel loosely connected, like in 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 my mind, they feel like they relate, but I can't quite put them together. And then all of a sudden you, you see a label that's describing that kind of mental landscape and it all seems to like come together in a, in an elegant way. It sounds like maybe a similar experience for you with, with some of these labels for lack of better terms. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's something I think that, uh, I think maybe in, in IA, like we're just big picture thinkers. And I, I really, as someone who, is maybe just kind of accepting the fact that I'm like a big picture thinker and that's how I operate. Um, it, it becomes like this sort of encompassing viewpoint, right? Of like, no matter what you look at, right? So I, if I look at coding and then I look at the UX and then we look at them together to build this, this space of this app, this website, whatever, it's still the fundamental core. So it comes down to like how it's used and how it's labeled and how you organize things. And I'm like, it, it's it's everywhere like yay <laughs> how did you get into coding uh what was it that uh, made you kind of uh, start out as a coder uh it i kind of fell into it accidentally um my okay so uh covid like once it started um i i was living in new england and uh i covid happened and it was time to move home back to california um just to be closer to family and stuff like that. Uh, so at the time, I had been a I've been in school for a medical lab technician, and I was almost done with it, like two more classes and rotations, and then I would have been been able to be licensed. And uh, then COVID, and like the rotations were all up in the air, and everything was so chaotic in those like early months. So I dropped out, moved home, wasn't sure what to do with my life. I took a uh, computer, um, a community college assessment. I think I got 98% STEM and then hundred percent programming. And I was like, wow, like, I didn't know that I was going to end up with anything other than STEM. And so I was like, oh, I guess I should look into this programming stuff. 
knowing literally nothing about it except for the fact that like some lab techs coded because you need to be able to like use the software um and i was like okay i guess i'll try that you know um so i did that and started learning web development in the basically a year ago <laughs> and that's how i came into tech <laughs> Right on. Uh, yeah. And on the, uh, on the, the lab, uh, sorry, the medical technician component, mm-hmm. like, like you said, just all of with COVID throwing everything up in the air, you know, how are these rotations going to, to work? Uh, I have to imagine that was a pretty, pretty stressful, I mean, a pandemic stressful to begin with. Right. But then yeah. when you're thinking, Prior to that, here's a plan. This is my roadmap. It's looking good. I'm almost at this next destination, you know, kind of personal wayfinding. You're probably feeling really good right before COVID. And then all of a sudden it's all up in the air. And so you, you, you make the shift into coding and then from conversations we had, it's also like, and, and you were just hinting at in our, in earlier in the conversation then it's also what what are the things to be coded right like solving that problem first <laughs> becomes really really interesting yeah and there's there's something really like fascinating to me the more i did freelance work was that everything that happened before it was time to code was was essential right like you couldn't do you need to make sure that your website makes sense before you begin to code it or else trying to fix it all at the end, like that's not, that's right. not helpful, you know? Um, and so, so it's like, it became this really interesting thing to sort of switch gears. And um, I've kind of talked about it before, but basically all I do is like reinvent myself at each turn of like, okay, this didn't work. So let's go that way. And that, that worked a little bit. Let's like sidestep into, you know, from, from coding into, UX. And then now I kind of sidestep back because I'm like, oh, wait, coding is still kind of interesting in a different way. And, you know, like I have a lot of interest. Yeah. So uh, out of curiosity, uh, do you do you speak any uh, foreign languages? No, I don't. <laughs> the the reason what? I'm because um, a couple coders that I I've worked with in the past uh, and, and not that you have to do this to be talented, but what I've found both on the coding side and then uh, uh, Jorge Arango, I remember he said something similar about like somebody asked him about being a better designer. And one of the things he said is learn another language, right? Because once you start to see how other systems work, but I've, I've been curious on the, basically the, because in many ways for me, and I, I don't mean over, oversimplify it and, and irritate some listeners because it can be a sensitive topic, <laughs> but it, it, coding is a language in and of itself, yeah. right? It, mm-hmm. it, it, there, there's grammars, there's rules, there's structure, yes. uh, there are, there, there's slang or hacks that can emerge, right? especially in, yeah. in open source networks. So I'm, I was just kind of curious about, about that front. Um, let's talk about chess too, because I know that's another, and this is this is an area I am super interested in the work that you're doing. But uh, do you mind telling folks about uh, what what you're doing in the chess space and how this relates, and then kind of how you got there? Sure. I, I uh, so what am I doing? How do I even explain what I'm doing in chess? Um, so I I write a lot, and so I tend so 
I guess I should probably start at the beginning because it's a little yeah. easier to explain. I burned down on coding at the end of 2020 when I was in the middle of like three freelance projects. I was learning JavaScript at the time and uh, that did not, it, it just burned out. Like 2020, hot mess, trying to change careers. That was a lot. Um, so I switched into UX and started doing that. And at the beginning of 2021, oh, I was reading uh, the polar bear book where they talk about chess as like an information architecture. And um, I was like, oh yeah, I should watch that Netflix show. And I had to say, I hadn't watched Queen's Gambit. So the polar bear book inspired me to watch Queen's Gambit, fell absolutely in love with chess and was like, wow, there's a lot of overlap in chess and information architecture. Um, so that's why I started writing these chess and information architecture blog posts. Um, and then it kind of grew a little bit more where it wasn't just like, like nerding out about IA. It just became like, chess became like a microcosm of like, do I understand what's happening in UX? Like as a new person to UX, do I understand it? And can I, can I teach it to someone else in a blog post? And then it became, um, the more that I explored chess, like online chess, it became like a reflection of like, do I see the pain points in this industry? Do I see what works well in this industry? And then of course, the more I played chess, the more I like fell in love with it. So it's, it's like this weird multifaceted thing because when I started blogging about the design of chess pieces and the usability of it, then everything like took off and I was like, holy cow. And then I started getting people from the chess industry having me come and do talks about usability in chess and like, um, you know, having me come and do workshops about usability for websites. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is nuts. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's kind of like, I, I write a lot about chess, but then I still write about the chess and UX and it became like, this really, uh, sort of like lightning in a bottle kind of moment because everybody had watched Queen's Gambit. And so, yeah, it just like, like that's, that's kind of what I ended up doing because the more I played chess, the more UX stuff came out of it of like, oh, this reminds me of wayfinding and this reminds me of taxonomy. And then it became, how do I share that information with people who maybe don't know what information architecture is or how to explain uh, UX components, right? Um, so yeah, and then I started writing for chess, like actual chess publications and I was just like, wow, this is like a really interesting like place to be between two worlds, right? Like going to like UX conferences to talk about chess and then going to like chess conferences to talk about UXs. Okay. It was, it's a trip, like, but I love it. Like I love chess and I'm prepping for a tournament at the end of the year. And so, so yeah, so it's just like, uh, I didn't expect the passion to come out of it at the beginning of the year, but like I, I love chess. <laughs> yeah, I and what I what I love uh, a bunch of things that I really really appreciate about what you're you're describing. So just going back to the foreign language thing, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have to be. A, there's another system, right? You're you're able to look at two different systems and what can you take from one system to help inform another, mm -hmm. or to understand a space that you're in and and ways that you might even 
for lack of a better term, solve a problem or understand, you know, a series of moves. Uh, because when you were, when you're describing the chess UX components, I was just thinking to a lot of, uh, complicated UX projects that I've been on. And, you know, you come in with your experience, your best practices and, uh, but the, the client or something, you know, somebody else makes the first move, right? And then it's like this flow of where you're you're both reacting and trying to be active about your you know, how how do I best apply my strategy? But the context is has already shifted, yep. right? Right? And I feel like uh, it's not to not to uh, invoke too much violence here, but like one of my favorite quotes when it comes to, to projects is, uh, you know, the old Mike Tyson quote that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and, and some of that just thinking too, like from, from chess as a complete outsider, right. But looking at is how, how much you're influenced by this, this almost, you know, kind of elegant dance is somebody does something else. How am I responding? And you know, thinking in layers too, is my response yep. going to be a tell or, or, you know, am I going to get flustered with this? If I've seen, you know, that doesn't seem to fit a mental model I have. So uh, that's, I'm, I'm just really kind of nerding out on like the potential in this space that you're, you're exploring. And I, I, I find it super fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. That, that's the thing that I think it's interesting, right? Like, so, so I took like a six month break from coding. All I did was like chess and UX stuff. And then I sort of hit a snag where I was like, hmm, like these, this chess engines that um, players use to analyze their games. And they're just computer programs that think way ahead because they're computer programs built to sort of you know, you can run your game into it and it'll tell you what comes up. Like this was a good move. This was a bad move, you know, like that kind of thing, but it doesn't really tell you what, like, why, why is that a good move or a bad move? Well, it's a computer. It's thinking it like, you know, way, way out there that you would never think of. Right. So that's kind of how I ended up back at coding, right? Like, okay, this chess engine is not useful. Like, not that it's not useful, but it's not usable. And I found it, there's no context. And that becomes a problem, right? Like if you are like me, I'm a new player and I see a, a pain point of like, how do you make this more usable? And I was like, oh, I got to start learning how to code again if I want to fix this chess engine to make it usable. And it's a purely like selfish thing, right? Like I want this project to exist. But at the same time, like now with all of my UX knowledge, I can go to the community and say, hey, what do you guys want to see in a chess engine? And how usually, like, of these results that I get, how do I begin to pull out the ones that we could actually make happen? You know? And I was like, oh, like, we're back here again, back at building. You know, it's like, you can't escape the coding for me anyway, but I can think about how to build a digital space that's actually going to be usable for all, at least by by my standards, I hope, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, right. And, and for me, as you're saying that, like one, one of the, the feel good components for me and does it like, you know, in, in my career, UX and design, uh, I think when it started out, it was, we can do no wrong because all we're trying to do is make these things more useful and usable. Right. And then, yeah. then you realize that if you're not thinking about it, you can do a lot of harm, right. Kind of, you know, mm -hmm. and, and thankfully over the past few years, a lot has been, 
written about and explored for like design ethics and, yeah. and, and biases that get writ- written into, to what we're doing. But then, yeah, thinking about what you're, you're doing here as well is I feel like it's, I feel like there's also application in, in learning, right? Cause you're like the, the way that you're doing this. So it's like, how do I make something that's like ethical? How do I make something that's accessible? Right. And then, yeah. And then a general kind of maximum in, in UX is actually when you focus on accessibility, you you tend to make it easier for everybody. Where yeah. where that was a hard sell early on was it seemed like you were you were you know are we designing for a one off right? It was like mm-hmm. this weird cold business calculus rather than yeah. But yeah, and then you're with your system. Sorry, I'm all over the place, but I was just That's thinking about okay. your your engine and from a learning process. It first sounds like. Uh, you're, you're, it's almost like a human Roomba, right? It's not telling you the <laughs> intent behind it, right? So you're just bouncing around. And then maybe after a while, I'll get a sense of, I guess I do, I get positive feedback when I do these things, I get negative yeah. feedback, but it sounded like one of the main things that was missing there was, was the intent or principle that sits behind it. And it sounds like yeah. that was one of the, let, let me tell you why, uh, this, we think this was a good move because we think that you could, you know, given the situation, it could have been a better move, but without those mm-hmm. underlying principles, I, I think it's really hard. And it's like, you're trying to learn these rote things. So I love also almost an improv nature to how do you understand more of the principles that sit behind chess so that, uh, See, here's where I'm nerding out. Years ago, I had to do case-based reasoning implementations. And the idea behind case-based was uh, we we haven't seen this exact situation, but we've seen some really similar ones. And when in those cases, here's here's what might work. And so mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious too in that in uh, almost from the learning side, I don't, this is just me with kind of a, a knowledge management lens that it, what you're doing sounds really robust in that space as well. Yeah. So like an example, um, <clears throat> okay. So, uh, if, if you, let's say you just played a game against another person online, the engine will, you can go and analyze the game and, and analyzing a game in chess is super duper important because if you don't analyze your games, you're not going to learn from it. Right. So if you're just playing and you're make, constantly making the same mistake and you don't analyze your games, then you're not really going to grow as a player. Right. So, when you run the engine, so you start running the engine and it'll go, it'll just have symbols, right? So now we're back to labels, right? Yep, so it'll, yep. go, it'll go question mark, question mark next to the piece, wherever you moved it. And it'll be like, question mark, question mark. And I'm like, okay, so it's a mistake. Like it's, which in, which is another language, right? You have a chess language, blunder. Yeah. Why is it a blunder? I don't know because I'm too new. I don't, I don't know enough about how to play or, you know, the like nuances of strategy and things like that. I'm still learning. So when it says question mark, question mark, okay, I made a mistake. Why is it a mistake? How, how did I, what it, uh, my thought process was I'm going to move this piece here because it achieves X, Y, Z goal. Right. But they're like, no, no, no. Thinking it like way high level of like, that's not actually going to help you because it can think, you know, it can see however many moves ahead. Right. Due to the probability. Right. Um, so that's kind of the thing, right? Or else they, the other label will be like exclamation point, exclamation point, which is like, you made a great move. And I'm like, cool. Why did I, what was so great about that? I don't know. <laughs> you know, 
And so it would just make me so mad because I'd be like, no, I'm trying to do this thing. And you're saying that it's wrong, but I don't know why it's wrong. Right, right. And I'm like, oh, it made me so frustrated. And so I was like, okay, I have to go back to coding in order to fix this problem because nobody's going to fix it the way I want it to. Right. I was like, great. Okay. So, so that's how I ended up trying to work on this, this project with a friend who's also uh, a way more like smarter than I am, but I, he does all the sort of backend stuff. And then I'm in charge of all the sort of UX front end stuff. So we're working on that together. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how, how that kind of came to be. And, um, now we're like, okay, we gotta, gotta fix this and, and just make it free for everybody, you know, just learn as I go. Cause it's just a passion project, right? It's just for fun. We just wanted to build something we want to see. Okay. Let's do it. You know? That's great. Uh, I know we've chatted about this in the, in the past. One of the, th- and, um, and I think you referenced, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the book, but so thinking about chess, thinking about STEM is those uh, there, there's not a lot of, not a lot of women. Yeah. Right. Invisible women. And so these spaces that you're, you're playing in, literally, right? Uh, but yeah. the, the, uh, we t- the, the gender discrepancy is uh, disturbing. Uh, and I just wanted to see if we could get some of your, some of your thoughts, thoughts on that. Yeah, so, so gender in chess is something that really interests me because it's a part of the user experience, right? And like a lot of women play online by using an like androgynous name or things like that because sometimes there can be harassment issues and um, there's just because there's so many like 14% of all chess players online are women that's it only 14% that's for a game that's played around the globe on every continent Um, that's quite low but that's also the highest it's ever been. And that in and of itself is a problem. And so when I started getting into chess and started becoming like noticing that these things were issues, it made, it put me in like a particular spot, I guess, of like, okay, as like a UX person, we have an accessibility issue. There's a design issue, right? Because of like, if you're not bringing enough women into the game or they're not staying in the game, how do you keep them? There's also uh, titled players. You can be like an international master, grandmaster, national master, but there's a separation between like the men. There's international master, which is all men, and then the women international master. So it's like a woman something, woman national master, woman like. So it's you got that sort of othering of women being its own thing rather than it's very segregated. It was to me, I found it really fascinating especially being a new woman to chess and then also doing UX work of like, okay, this is a very interesting space. That's very segregated and has issues, right? It's just, these are, these are particular pain points. How do you build a more accessible um, space? You know, I, I don't necessarily have the answer for that, but it's just an interesting question 
And I, I can't help but like, you know, sort of wonder what it would be like. So for example, uh, I was talking with another, um, like another woman, she plays chess and she's uh, big on sort of bringing more women in chess. Um, her name is Helly. And um, she was talking about how, well, maybe, maybe for example, the, the book, yeah. the Caroline, Caroline Criado Perez book on data bias, they might have the same problem. How do you build, like maybe women need a different way of looking at chess, for example, like instead of it always being kind of the same way, right? All, everybody looks at the board. Like if you teach everybody the same way, but not everybody learns the same way, then you're not going to keep people in the game. Um, so that, that was kind of something we had been talking about lately. And I thought that was an interesting, like could be an interesting place to, to research of like, how do, how do women play different than men? You know, there, there's definitely differences, but when all the data is not being separated based on sex, then you're not looking at the data like thoroughly, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and some of what you're, you're describing too is reminding me of, um, uh, a talk a couple of years ago, actually it, at, uh, at an IAC, uh, event and it was Bob Kassenchek. Uh, he had a talk. It was called, uh, is a hot dog, a sandwich. Right. And I don't know if you're familiar with that debate Yes. and, and, and Bob's <laughs> delivery style is great. Yeah. yeah. But what was, what was eye-opening for me, whether these are uh, intentional or not, or we, you know, at, at some level where you have uh, biases, whether that's kind of patriarchy type things built in, but we've seen even, even from designers making quick decisions, like in, in drop downs, right. Mm -hmm. uh, is that your uh, sex or gender? Is it, you know, is it just male, yeah. female, female, right. You're, you're already making mm -hmm. choices there or yeah. uh, even country when you have to have like, what country are you from? Right. And is Palestine a country? Because there are people there that will say that it is. And there are people that say that it is. I mean, and in the U.S., we don't have like we have the luxury of not having those kind of deep issues. Right. But it, it it's I mean, we have a lot of issues. I just mean that, you know, every, everybody pretty much. Yeah. But then then you start to get into, well, is it a protectorate? Is it a territory? Right. We get into some yeah. really interesting spaces there. And so what what you had said was making me think about the othering just through those labels. It's like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the different flavors of champ, or I was thinking about sometimes in college sports or, or, or high school sports too. It's well, we're, we're the, you know, the high school might be the warriors or the high school might be, I don't know. They, they might be uh, the Hawks, but then when, when it's the women's sports, it's the lady Hawks, right? Yeah. It's like, Mm -hmm. And it already said like, well, you're not, yeah, you're affiliated with this space, but right. you, you're not a hundred percent welcome here is, is kind of the implications of those. So uh, I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't know that about, uh, a, it, it makes sense to me when you said it about kind of the, the different champion, like, but it, it almost mm -hmm. to me sounds really uh, diminishing of a woman's accomplishment because it's like, oh, well, you 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 won in this space, but proper chess is is this type of grandmaster. Hey, um, I mean it, it's to to be like it's still the same amount. Like it's still 
And I see now we're getting into like the label, like, yeah. like categorizing and labeling yep. and, and things like that. It doesn't, I don't know if it, I don't think it diminishes them, but it also like the playing field kind of changes a little because a lot of the tournaments and like, so there's tournaments that go on all the time. It's not like baseball or basketball where there's like a season on and a season off. So it, it there's definitely, it's diminishing in the sense of like, when you look at the tournaments, a lot of them are men. Like it's male, it's the male tournaments. And then there's not that many women who play in like sort of like a mixed um, way. So like a really big tournament going on right now with like Magnus Carlsen, who's one of like the highest players. And so like the, the World Cup, they have their own World Cup. And so that's mostly men. Because that's just, you know what I mean? Like, it's just weirdly segregated. And I was like, wow, this is so strange to me as a new person, as an outsider. Um, it's not much an outsider anymore, but, but yeah, so that was, and then, and then the fact that Queen's Gambit brought so many women, including myself into chess. And then you're like, okay, so where is my place here? Right? Like, as I prepped to go to that tournament at the end of the year, I'm like, like they're telling, I've been told by others, like steal yourself for a lot of men and a lot of kids because you can play adults play children and that's kind of like an interesting like leveling playing field yeah um but at the same time it's a lot of men and a lot of young girls but not a lot of like adult women yeah i was <laughs> thanks they, that was because one of the things i was interested too when you say is um also like from a from a ux or or customer experience lens might be interesting uh, the, the lack of retention for, for women, mm -hmm. right. You kind of mentioned yeah. that earlier too, is not that it's down, but why, why might they approach it and not stay with what are, what are the, what are those friction points or, or things yeah. that are, are not, uh, you know, sustaining women in, in chess. And honestly, that varies from country to country. It seems like, like, uh, you know, I feel like as someone who didn't play chess a year ago and now plays chess, like, I don't really, I didn't know anybody who played chess. Um, so I wasn't exposed to it. And I think a lot of people, if you're not exposed to playing chess when you're young or you don't know people who play, then that makes it hard to get into. Um, and I think that, like, depending on which country it is, how how much they use chess as, like, a, a, a way to learn. Like, in, here in America, we have a lot of, like, scholastic chess but in other countries, not as much. And then, you know, like that kind of comes into play. And so that that's, I mean, I, I definitely do not know all of those answers, but I do know that it, it does vary a lot. And then how important is it to bring more women in varies from place to place. You know, it's that, that in and of itself, the fact that like there's governing bodies of like chess organizations that vary from country to country and then European versus U S versus like Asia versus like, the 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 sort of like labels taxonomy like all that stuff i'm like oh my god this isn't organized as well as you would think it wouldn't be i mean it is because it's country to country but you know yeah i guess it, it, stealing I from know. ux again is you you feel like there might be more <laughs> shared standards right but at at uh so yeah. these all these systems are probably internally consistent within their realm yeah. but then they they break they're they're still siloed at kind of a global level it, which which to me like when i looked at it that way i was like whoa 
this is crazy. How many other, I can't think of a lot of other things where you would have that, you know, like the right. internet is not siloed. Like, yeah. you know, and it's, everybody uses it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely been really interesting getting into that space and thinking of it in like an IA or UX kind of way. So I want to just continue and thanks so much for indulging me on all these weird, uh, cause I'm finding this super fascinating. Uh, but one of the things you had mentioned to me, uh, also kind of in this crossover space between UX, IA and chess was, uh, the notion of exformation, right. And we were thinking yeah. uh, Cassini's talk on, on exformation, uh, yeah, I, I love it love, and love, love Cassini's work. Uh, but you you had said that chess is really rich in exformation and yeah I, I could make some guesses but I, I I'd rather you like what help me walk me through the exformation components of chess and why that is like why it's such a rich area for for exformation okay um so to me I mean from from what I hear and whatever from my own experiences um if you ask people how you play chess it's capture, you know, trap your opponent's king, and here's how the pieces move. Okay, go have fun. That's it. But it's not, right? It's more than just how the pieces move. You're building strategy. You have long-term strategy, short-term tactics. There are plays that exist within a particular thing. The game is actually broken down by, like, an opening, middle, and end game, which then there's different plays that happen within those those labels, right? Those, I guess, more like a taxonomy, right? Of opening, middle, and ending. Yeah. That's on my list of like things to write about. <laughs> <laughs> then you have pieces which are worth a certain relative value. And you have to think about material gain and lost. We have a tempo, right? You gain tempo when you gain pieces, and the, your opponent will lose tempo. And these are all things that you have to factor in. But naturally that's a lot of stuff to share with someone who's brand new um but all of that stuff is unspoken that's what makes it all exformation and it's hard when you're a new person to chess because you will play like someone will say how you play chess they'll show you how to play how to play chess i put that in quotes and then you'll lose because they already know more than you because of all that those unspoken things the strategy the all that stuff like even I've, I've only been playing chess for like six months and I still lose a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm learning all this stuff. It just takes time, right? But you don't want to overwhelm them. And you, but it's also really kind of a little demoralizing, right? You're like, oh, you told me these two things and I still lost, right? Because there's no chance in every, all the quote unquote, all the rules are clear to both of you you and the, me and let's say you and I are playing, right? You would say those are the rules, right? Quote, unquote. But they're not because of all this other stuff that sits within the context of the game that they don't talk about. And when you play online, all that stuff is sitting there, uh, like time controls. So those are how long you have to play the game. And then they get you get incremental time. And so those are the, that's what makes up time controls. I didn't even mention time controls when I talked about all the other stuff, right? Right. So that in itself, it's like another language, but it's all unspoken. And it, I thought that to me, that's what made, once I, once I saw Cassini's video, 
and understood what exclamation was, I was like, oh, this is why people think that you have to be smart to play chess or why it's so hard. It's not hard. You just don't understand the language, you know? Yeah, right. That's one of the things, too, from just in general with exclamation from Cassini's <laughs> talk that I find is um, uh, it's it's almost um, meme like. Right. That it's like <laughs> it, like, you know, some people see me and they they, they get it. And there's other like there, and then there's other like I have no idea what's going on here. And the the information payload, uh, the potential payloads there the whole time. Right. It's just, will somebody know? And so to your point, all of these, these almost detailed uh, or nuanced elements that are left out, but for, for, for those that are knowledgeable, they can already read or pick up on what's going on. Yeah. I was in, in one. So by chance uh, have you, cause I, I'm a big fan of Annie Duke's work. uh, Have you read she um, how to decide um, it's basically, so, you know, Annie Duke, short, short-ish story on her. She was doing a lot of work in like a PhD program on basically decision-making and oh, uh, had a physical illness that prevented her from continuing her PhD for a while. And because her, her, it was grant funded work. So if she couldn't do that. Also her, uh, basically her funding went away, uh, but she basically went off for 10 years to play professional poker won a world series of poker um uh uh bracelet and i think four million in 10 years playing professional poker so she talks about how do we make good decisions with incomplete information and talked about the difference between some games like because poker there is randomness right it is a like chess it's not like okay uh you know one third of the pieces are available right now and yeah. over the course of time, you know, it's like we're uh, a, you know, a white or a black piece is going to get dropped. And it it may be like it might be a pawn. It might be a queen that you, right. you know, end up getting. Everybody has the same set to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, the 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 randomness is really just relative to how somebody acts or reacts. Right. But the, the game itself is already yeah. a contained object. Mm-hmm. And you know, the interesting thing about the more I got into chess, the more I like they're uh, titled players who are big poker players. Some of them even play professionally. I, I it's it's a really fascinating overlap in such a small like like a niche community, but there's a ton of, of chess players who love to play poker. And I wonder if it's that same decision making. And that's what I think is really interesting about about looking at chess through the lens of UX is because it encompasses these things, right? It's, it's interaction design, how you're, how you move your pieces, how you make your play. Um, if a person does something you didn't expect them to do, or maybe they called you on your bluff for real and you're like, Oh crap, now I have to go through with this. Um, you know, and then, but it's, it's psychology, it's design. It's, it's all these things that sort of in a, in a backbone of, of UX, right? Cause you have to think about all these things. And then it also applies to poker, which is wild to me. Like the fact that like, even though poker has more randomness, but still the decision-making components are there and it becomes like people, like um, it's just, it's so funny. That's really interesting that you brought it up. <laughs> Did you know that there were a lot of chess players in poker? 
That that I, I didn't know, but one of the things that uh, where I, f- I felt some crossover too is you were talking about analyzing your your game, right, and how to yeah. and, and, and to learn. And uh, Annie had said that. Uh, so she talks about a bias. Uh, she and she gave it an e- easier, more accessible label. Thinking about labels, but she calls it resulting. Um, oh. And I forget the kind of the the decision-making psychology kind of proper term, but basically resulting is where some of, some of your biases get in the way of learning. Um, mm-hmm. And so in the poker context, um, Oh, I lost because that was just a bad beat, right? That could, mm-hmm. but you actually, you, you might've made a bad decision and there was right. And, and if you, if you're looking, looking at these things where she said, we're, we're less likely to acknowledge luck uh, in, in its positive form. Like, oh, whew, I got lucky there. Uh, you know, we tend to say, oh, I succeeded because I'm good, uh, mm-hmm. not because I'm lucky. And then if we fail, it was like, oh, man, that could have happened to anybody, right? That's just such a, that, yeah. that's a bad break, a bad beat. Uh, but she is really big on uh, decision hygiene and reviewing things and she said that some of her friends in poker sometimes they would analyze a game and certain moves and and would say like i you know i'm, I'm actually not sure if i made made the right choice or it was just resulting um and so i just i like that that extra level of almost intentionality into mm-hmm. just thinking through one why did i do this and then was was that right or what might i have done differently Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, she I think you might like this. She she has a great talk and there's a video. I think that I thought there's a video for it. But uh, uh, when Pete Carroll and the Seahawks uh, a few years ago in the Super Bowl, they lost, mm-hmm. you know, they they were they were on the uh, they're on the goal line. Time's running out. Uh, and uh, you know, they, they everybody thought they're going to run the ball, you know, that they'd give the ball to Marshawn Lynch. He'd score, they'd win, but they pass and it's intercepted and they lose. And like the next day, like Sports Illustrated, worst decision in Super Bowl history. Wow. And she does a really good analysis of she looks at all of the odds and she's like, Mm -hmm. it's it was actually a really good decision because one, uh, the probability of getting intercepted is really low. Uh, And if you don't, if you complete the pass, it's touchdown. If you don't the clock stops. And so you actually have an opportunity for more plays than you would like if they ran the ball and they didn't get it, they get one more play. They do this, they have two more plays. So she's like, she was super, uh, you know, like she makes a great argument for that. Pete Carroll made the right choice. It was just a shit outcome. And then everybody kind of looks at the outcome rather than the decision. And that's how Mm -hmm. then they judge if somebody made a good choice or not. And and that has been for me really like it challenges my own mental model, right? Like when I sort of mm-hmm. date is how I think about things and like, you know, like are people making good decisions and can you separate the results and look at like what, what went in? And so that's part of why I love the, but the, the intent and principle part that you're looking at is um, somebody might still have a successful move, uh, but they might've made it for the wrong reason. So they're not going to be successful in the future. So I just sorry. all these layers of also looking at like the, the yep. data, the probability mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. And I think having that probability mindset becomes interesting. So, I mean, now that you say it, I could see 
uh, chess, the very a- analytical side of strong chess players and poker players, like that, yeah. that Venn diagram having a lot of overlap, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting to me is when you think about, uh, like to bring it back to UX a little bit, when you look at the end result of like, oh, a button goes here on the page and then everybody's like, well, this place doesn't make any sense for this button to go here or this content, this page, you know, and you start thinking about the like, if that decision was made with, you know, how much research did they do? Did they have an IA who was looking at this in this way? Did they have all these things? Like everything that happened before the button was added in, you know, maybe not the greatest place on the on a website, you know? Um, and it's just, it's like you're, when you talked about like decision-making and the results of it, but you, you don't see all the stuff behind it and that's all the strategy behind it because it's invisible. Right. You know? Yeah. That, and for me, managing designers, that was one, one of the biggest things I wanted to know was how they came to that choice. Mm-hmm. But because, yeah, there are some things like, okay, this, the way we got here on this project, not good. But what I want to know is, is what was there, was there, was there good rational thought behind yeah. it? Um, that's a, a friend of mine who runs a design firm. You know, that's what he said. He's never interested in looking at a designer's portfolio. Uh, really? because everything's polished. It, uh, yeah, it looks good. Oh, that's interesting. Right. What, what I want, he, what he wants to see is somebody's sketchbook. I want to see like, Ooh, wow. how did, how did the ideas emerge? What, what assumptions mm-hmm. were you making? How did you play with an idea? Because those are, that, that makes him more comfortable putting somebody in spaces that aren't predefined, right? It's, it's not like an assembly line. Can you just keep doing these things, right? It's mm-hmm. like when faced with these challenges, help me understand how you think through these things. Yeah. And uh, could, rather than a, a super polished, you know, fi- final thing where for me also uh, as a hiring manager for designers, I always loved when some somebody's showing uh, like this giant name brand, really excellent looking website and, you know, but what was your role? Because right, <laughs> there's a large teams of people, right? But they're, right. They're sh- it's like they're showing Coca-Cola's website. I'm like, yeah, I, I did it all, <laughs> right? <laughs> You're like, me, you didn't. <laughs> right. There's no way. So tell me, yeah, tell me what you did, what the problem was and how you got there. So maybe we could, maybe after you do the chess stuff, we could help uh, uh, UX design managers. Uh, <laughs> you could have, you could have question mark, question mark or exclamation, exclamation point when... <laughs> When designers are are starting to to grid things out, I like that idea. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about your. I mean, we've we've hit upon this a bit, and I, I just love uh, like how your your interest and passion and how you go deep on stuff. Uh, but do you ever feel stuck uh, when you're and when you feel if you do, uh, what are your kind of personal techniques for for getting unstuck? I get stuck a lot. That's why I end up making a lot of different moves, right? And it goes, yeah. oh, I, I like coding. No, wait, I like UX. No, wait, I like coding again. But this type of coding, like for this particular thing, right? So when when I get stuck, which is a lot, um, I tend to start asking around. I get really, really inquisitive and I start pestering everybody. How do I fix this? What do I do? Is this, and then, you know, I'll just start, talking so like for example when I got stuck with coding and I burned out really bad I was like this isn't right for me I had just assumed that 
on my first on, on learning JavaScript, my first programming language, I sort of was like, no, this isn't a good fit for me. And I started asking around about UX and, and having my portfolio and, you know, they were like, oh, you know, in UX, you would, you would be a really good fit to do, um, like data storytelling because I was a fiction writer in my twenties. I was like, I had no idea that was a thing. Right. And then it just becomes leveraging, right? How do I leverage something like my existing stuff and then just bump it up a little. Right. And then how do I, it's, it almost becomes like, okay, I'm stuck. How do I find the, that sliver of light for the exit? And then <clears throat> I can just move over. Um, and so, so that's like, I would say the bulk of it is just asking everybody questions. I have, I ask people a million questions. How do I fix this? How do I do this? What does this do? You know, <laughs> like I, I ask a lot. Um, so I, I never, I never keep it to myself. And that's why like, I'm really big on, on asking people on Twitter, what's going on? How does this work? Um, I try to build in public. So if someone's like, Hey, I noticed that you got stuck on this thing. Here's how you fix it. Oh, thank you. Wouldn't have known that yeah. if I hadn't put it out there. Um, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of just put it out there. Let people know what you're doing and they can help you get unstuck because you can't do things without a community. That is great. I one of when you the the doing things in public component, I've heard from other uh, design friends of mine that came up because I didn't come up through like an art studio background, but they've mm -hmm. talked about in in studio work with physical things, you can also see where somebody's at and right and yeah. and like they they can help. But what's hard a lot of times when you're working in digital, it literally it, it's this this black box and people mm -hmm. can't see like kind of what's in progress. I, I love the you know, just being public about it. And one of the things I really appreciate about you uh, is to the the questions you ask on Twitter. But I, for me too, just uh, you know, some of them are, are things that are like directly connected to things I'm thinking about. And so then I, I love like the conversation thread that emerges, yeah. but it's, it's almost easier for me to see it when it's something that's not directly connected. Cause I've noticed like when you talk, you're, you're talking about specific chess challenges and here's what I've done, or I'm reading this right now thoughts. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate the, the, the threaded conversations that emerge from those. Yeah. Like, like the other day when we were talking about planners, right. Of like yeah. digital versus like tangible things. So how do you fit that into your day-to-day -day life, right? Like I have a physical daily planner now, but I still need my like computer alerts to remind me 30 minutes until, you know, we do our podcast. Oh crap. Like I have 30 minutes, you know? Like yeah. <laughs> and when you were talking about that, I was wondering about too, is like, um, just trying to, for me personally, how do I get better at, uh, the, the kind of what's helpful on the human side versus, uh, the the compute like the shit work for the computer the reminder right like mm -hmm. okay i don't need i don't need mental space if i know i have these reminders and and i've been trying to think about it also from from time scale perspective on mm -hmm. what are the things i don't want to forget but then where i really struggle is for me when i'm typing i i it's just bulleted outlines right and yeah. when you're dealing with a complex idea that but i that's where i love more paper Right. And sketch, yeah. like whether it's mind mapping or how are these connected or right now, I just got to get it out. I can't force it to, to fit. And so yeah. I'm still all over the place. And 
too. I don't know. One of my friends who's a martial art, he, he goes, he, he can't switch dojos, right? And that's, I feel <laughs> like I'm stuck between kind of physical and digital note-taking dojos. Yeah, exactly. It's, I, I feel that because it's hard to shift gears, right? Yeah. And so when I've been reading, I've been reading Andrew Hinton's book, Understanding Context, right? So I'm like, oh, the paper, paper planner becomes context. But my alerts, my digital alerts continue because that that's I don't need context to remind me that we're going to have, you know, this this recording in 30 minutes. But I might need the context to remind me that, you know, I need to study like these components or write this blog post about this particular topic that I'm covering those bulleted points, you know, and how they connect. And then that that just because like that's that's the context that I need. But like, when do I need the context? And with like the internet of things, like how do I, how do I know when I need context and when I don't? Right. I have a hard time with that. Yeah. I don't, but I'm sure a lot of people do. Yeah. And, and, and I, I love that uh, you're reading and uh, Andrew's book is so good. I think it's, it it's really thought provoking. Um, <laughs> and I found myself with his book a few times having to make a couple runs at, wait, what did I just read there? Okay. Let me, <laughs> let me go back. Well, that's what's interesting about reading his book along with the Invisible Women book because you know she's talking about context, but so is he in two different ways. Yeah, and the results of not having context affects so many affects fifty percent of the population, right? Without without yeah. that context in your research, and then it shows in your in your website or you know snow plowing or all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so. Uh... Before we go, uh, one one of the things I want to talk to you about was, too is I, I uh, try to talk to guests about advice, either good advice they've received uh, mm-hmm. from uh, more of a mentor or advice they wish they would have received earlier in their career. But any any advice for listeners out there from from your perspective and journey? Um, hmm. I would say tell people what you're excited about. I wish I had known that like that I had, if I had known what I know now of, I just started talking about chess because I enjoyed it. And then it brought so many things into my life and it it got me consulting interviews and, you know, job offers and things like that, because I talked about it online and you never know who's watching, not in like a creepy way, but in a good way, like, (laughs) right. And they'll go, Oh, Hey, I noticed that you're working on this project. And like that really, I, that's awesome. Like I need help with something like this, right? You never know. So just be vocal about what you love. And even if it seems like no one likes that thing, you should still do it anyway, because even more so because the more specific and like out there your, your interest is the more like you'll find those people who like that exact same thing. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah. I love it. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time and bearing with me as I was falling down my own nerd holes with and starting to make more connections on on the work that you're doing. But I I just love these, these spaces that you're blending. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun.